Welcome back to the Indotechno Podcast, Season 3, Episode 27. I'm Alan Hallowell, Venture Partner at Leading Early Stage Indonesian VC, AC Ventures, and Founder of Startup Consultancy, Gizmo Advisors. Now, the most fundamental and intractable problem facing Indonesia's technology ecosystem is the state of the educational system. Costs are exorbitant relative to income levels, and that's exacerbated by one, a lack of government funding, and two, a lack of private sector financing options. On the demand side, meanwhile, Indonesia needs more than 110 million skilled workers by 2030. Currently, only 17% of the 127 million Indonesians with jobs have finished high school, while less than 10% have a university degree. The country is clearly in acute need of many elements here. Most importantly, in my mind, it would be a scalable education financing program. We are thus very pleased to have joined us today, Nagatan, CEO and co-founder of Arudify, a platform focused on expanding access to financial services for students. Great to have you join us today, Naga. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So, Naga, before we drill down to Arudify's specific focus and mission, Let's talk about the greatest challenges facing Indonesia's higher education market in your mind. Yeah, I think for me, that would just be participation. So if you look at across Southeast Asia, tertiary enrollment rates in Indonesia are at or around 30%. And actually, if you compare that to our neighboring countries, Thailand is actually double that, close to 60%. In Singapore, you have obviously north of 90%. So Indonesia is quite lagging. Indonesia, along with the Philippines, are lagging quite far behind their peers. So broad-based participation within vocational and higher education is the number one, I would say, existential threat to the higher education market. And obviously taking a step back to also the number of skilled workers in that the countries need over the next few decades. Understood. Now, that part of higher education that relates to Indonesia's technology ecosystem obviously is very near and dear to me as the host of the Indo-Techno podcast, what can you share about the quality of STEM instruction or science, technology, engineering, and mathematics instruction? And what are your expectations of its further development? I'm not sure I can really comment on the quality of STEM instruction in Indonesia. I would say, though, that if you look at the World Bank's recent report, they quoted a statistic where only about 24% of computer science graduates actually work in a related field after graduation. So I guess that is some proxy to the relevance of STEM instruction in Indonesia. And I think this is also a super interesting problem. I think there are a lot of interesting companies and startups out there that are also tackling this. Obviously, whether after school education segment or more coding school in nature to address this, almost like a finishing school for computer science graduates as they seek jobs within the tech ecosystem. But I think the number one thing that is clear is that there are not enough engineering graduates. And you see that consistently across all Indonesian tech companies, right? That had to outsource employment to other markets, whether that be Vietnam, India, or otherwise. So I I hear you. I I think this is a really pressing problem. Given the growth of the tech sector, this actually is something that is lagging in the country. So let's get down to what exactly Arutify is focused on. Yeah. So I think you could tackle this problem from a number of different angles. And for us, when I started this company back in 2018, when we first launched, 
really, we sort of approached it from a first principles perspective. So I think if you ask me, why are we not getting enough graduates? I think it goes back to not having enough participation in higher education. And I think if you look at the cost of higher education in Indonesia and the Philippines relative to income per capita, you'll realize that actually it is a bit higher than other developed markets. I think France is at a measly 3%, whereas in Indonesia and the Philippines, you just have higher education and north of 100% relative to income per capita, GDP per capita. So education is expensive. But at the same time, there's no way to afford it. Banks don't offer any such product as a student loan. You can't walk into any Baywomen bank or otherwise get a student loan product. At most, they'll refer you to the cards department, but most students don't qualify for credit. And I think most of the government efforts are still very much focused on early childhood or K-12. So you see budgets being allocated towards improving teacher training, early childhood, which is also very important. But as a result, the corollary of that is that there's actually not enough funding going into higher education. You actually see a lot of, even within the public university space in Indonesia, the Peter ends, you'll see that the biaya so that the tuition fees are actually creeping up gradually. So unless there is a scalable financing option in place that can extend credit in a scalable and efficient way to hundreds and thousands or millions of students, your participation rate won't increase. So that's the problem that we chose to work on and solve. So in a nutshell, our focus is on addressing this problem through extending credit to students. So we partner now with over 100 universities across both Indonesia and the Philippines, integrating with school enrollment systems and basically providing students a more efficient and affordable way to pay for their tuition fees. Well, great. Let's talk a little more, if not a lot more, about Indonesia's university students. We mentioned earlier that only 10% of Indonesia's 127 million workers have a university degree. How are those Indonesian university students paying for school right now? I think most people are relying on friends and family on the most part, or informal credit. We typically see disbursement volumes for, let's say, cash loan companies or the equivalent of five, six in the Philippines or money lenders in the Philippines. You'll see peak demand during January, February, and July, August, which coincides with the start of semester enrollment. So people are borrowing for education just through informal and very expensive means or informally through friends and family. My country manager in the Philippines had to borrow from friends to pay off his final two years of college and nearly pay them back three years after graduation. We have students as well that end up deferring. You also see this phenomenon in Indo and Philippines where there are a lot of working students. So even on my team in Indonesia, I have people that are working full-time but are still getting their SAP. They're still working towards a bachelor's degree. So you have a lot of working students that rather than graduate within three to four years, end up taking five, six, seven, or even eight years to finish college. We actually had a mother recently in the Philippines that I think after 17 years, if I'm not wrong, finally got her college degree through our help. And I think her child, in a number of years time, is probably due for their turn to enroll in college. So I think people are just hustling to find a way to pay for college or deferring their final graduation. And it's not efficient. It is not an efficient system today. And this is really what we're trying to address and solve. Understood. So the status quo is that we clearly don't have many options. And those that are available are not exactly desirable. So I assume that interest rate is one of the main criteria that students evaluate. If that is the case, how do we compare to these traditional alternatives that you just mentioned? I think the closest comparable to us would be credit card. So the credit card, buy now, pay later, 
you see those rates that hover anywhere between two and a half to 3% per month, typically on an effective rate basis. For us, actually, because we work through our university partners, we're actually able to limit default rates and also fraud quite significantly because we would curate a list of universities that we partner with and we actually directly disperse to the schools rather than the students. So there's no incentive to do fraud. I think that allows us to charge much lower rates and we end up charging anywhere typically between zero to one and a half percent per month, typically. In cases where we offer zero percent, actually it's the school that is subsidizing the students. Another corollary of the current status quo is that actually a lot of universities are acting like they're offering internal Chichilan programs so students can pay for their tuition fees over three, six, or nine months occasionally with some level of interest rates, but the school actually ends up having that receivable sit on their balance sheet. So the head of finance or the CFO of the school is basically having a receivable on the balance sheet and basically having to manage that late payment or cash flow and have to bother with reminders and collections from the students, manage default risks. So when they actually work with us, they can outsource all of that to us. But we take on the default risk, we take on the collections and the burden of that, and we disperse the school up front. So sometimes schools that have worked with us end up subsidizing the cost to the students. So in cases where we offer 0% financing options to our customers, to the students, they're able to just spread the tuition fee over 6, 9, or 12 months, depending on the installment plans that we come up with. And then the school gives us a, a small discount to make up for that. Understood. So some of these schools can begin to resemble a bank almost as much as they do an institution of higher learning. Now, Naga, can you compare and contrast the student financing market that you've addressed over the past few questions in Indonesia with maybe China and or U.S. and or Europe just to make a comparison for our international audience? Yeah, so I think, well, student financing in Indonesia is still very nascent. We have sort of one of the probably the largest players in the market today. And between the two countries, we've impacted maybe over 25,000 students, have about $10 million U.S. in loans outstanding. So it's still a very nascent industry, but it's growing quite quick. Contrast that, I think, with China. I think China, actually, you don't have a student loan industry or what they call sort of shueshun taipan. It's really because there is very heavy government intervention. So governments, public universities are all, I think, virtually free in China and there are no private universities. You can't be a private higher education institute in China. So that market doesn't exist. Europe is, I think, somewhere in between, whereas U.S. you are on the other end of the extreme, where private universities dominate the higher education landscape and tuition fees creep up to the hundreds and thousands of dollars, especially at your Ivy League universities or otherwise. And there, I think more than 80% of students that graduate from college or master's programs take on student debt. And that's facilitated by the U.S. government um, through Sally May or otherwise, or, or I think today's thing's called Navient. But then you have a lot of startups or banks that offer refinancing options. So it's a very mature market. I, I believe student debt in the U.S. ranks only behind credit card and mortgages in terms of asset size. So it's a massive industry. But while it is one end of the extreme, it does allow the higher education spend in the country to facilitate much higher investment into education where you can attract better teachers, you can provide better facilities to students and otherwise. Whereas Indonesia is still very, very much behind that, where schools are struggling to attract funding. They, they don't have enough funding to invest in better facilities for the students, pay teachers better. I am a proponent of paying teachers more. I think even in the U.S., that's something that probably still holds true today. But yeah, in, in a nutshell, I think China is non-existent. Europe, maybe somewhere between China and the U.S. And I think Indonesia is growing quite quickly, but still a nascent industry overall. Yeah. Don't get me going on dysfunction in the U.S. higher education financing sphere. 
Now, Naga, you mentioned that schools are our major distribution channel, our major partner. Can you profile for us the quote-unquote virtuous cycle that you seek to create for a partner school of Arutify? Yeah, I think it goes back to the current status quo, which is that schools providing financing is not the core business of the school. That's a distraction, right? The purpose of schools is to provide good quality education and arguably as well to provide a good education to employment outcomes. When you throw financing into the mix, that is quite far outside the core business of a school. And so for us, we essentially want to be the backend engine of our university partners, right? Providing the invisible financing solution that students can avail of when they enroll at one of our university partners, rather than having to pay one or two months of household income in terms of tuition fees upfront, you can spread that and pay five to 600,000 Indonesian rupiah per month over 12 months. That makes a big difference in terms of budgeting. And so we want to be that backend engine of schools. And we're inadvertently helping schools to drive recruitment and retention. We actually have opened a branch office in Jogja recently. Jogja is sort of Kota Pelaruja, right, in Indonesia, the capital of education. If you just drive down the main streets, you'll see billboards on the side of the roads. And we actually typically would co-market with the schools. So we'll pay maybe 40% or 50% and share the marketing costs with the university partner. And they will allocate some of the marketing budget. And we would advertise that when you enroll at this specific university, you can avail of Danachita and spread your payments and offer you know, an avail of 0% financing over 12 months or 18 months or whatnot. And that makes a big difference in terms of both recruitment and retention. At the start of call, we talked about 35% tertiary enrollment in Indonesia. That number actually represents that for every 100 graduating high school students, you have 35 that enter into year one of college or some vocational program like Desatu, Deidua, Tetiga, Tuasdua. Through the years, you actually have maybe 10 to 15% attrition every semester or every year. So by the time that you end up at year four, maybe 15 or 20% graduate on time. So then the biggest cause of people dropping out or deferring studies is financial difficulties. So schools actually see us as a real tool to drive recruitment and retention and help them to not only grow incoming enrollment class sizes, but also retain more students through the years. And it's a win-win for us, right? We're not making money at the expense of schools. Most of these private universities are not at capacity. So we're helping them to grow and and enroll more students. And it's really a win-win situation where they don't have to take on that risk and they can also grow their enrollment class sizes and afford better facilities and enroll more students and and provide better quality education and so on and so forth. By freeing up their capacity to focus on the core business or core reason for being, which is education delivery. Great. Now, how long on average does it take to convince a university to work with us? To be quite honest, I think in the first two years of our operations, maybe it took like six months to convince our first partner. Now we've actually closed a couple of even public universities within two to three weeks. On average, I would say our sales cycles range from three weeks to about three months, depending on the nature of the school, the, the size of the university, and so on and so forth. But, but, but typically it'll take one or two meetings. We'll maybe meet the vice rector in the first meeting and then maybe sign up the MOA within the second or third meeting. Understood. Now, our two main markets currently are Indonesia and the Philippines. Can you share with us any interesting comparisons between how things work in these two countries? So I think for our listeners that are not so familiar with the Philippine education system, the education system in the Philippines actually mirrors more the U.S. Besides University of the Philippines, UP, you sort of have private universities dominating the higher education landscape there and attracting the bulk of students. In some ways, it mirrors that of the U.S. where they are networked universities. 
in the same way that you have University of California a system, and then you have standalone universities there with UC Berkeley, UC Davis, UC Santa Barbara, UCLA, but all loosely affiliated. You have that in the Philippines as well. So you have De La Salle, the main branch in Manila, and then you have different campuses or standalone units spread across the country. Same with Ateneo. You have Ateneo did Manila, and then you also have Ateneo did Davao. And I think another Ateneo did Naga in Naga City. And so it's much more concentrated in the Philippines and dominated by a handful of universities. In Indonesia, it's very fragmented. The largest universities in the Philippines, I would say, enroll between 20 to 30, 40,000 students, maybe, across their campuses. In Indonesia, most schools, I would say, enroll below 10,000, with the exception of certain public universities. But obviously, you have very large public universities that enroll larger class sizes. But otherwise, outside of them, the schools tend to be smaller and they're much, much more fragmented. So that would be the new ones in terms of the two markets. In terms of the education system, I would say in the Philippines, everybody wants to get a bachelor's degree. In Indonesia, it's different. People just want a good job. So they take programs that help them to get a better job. And that might not mean a bachelor's degree, which is S1, right? It could be a DETIGA program, D3 program. And actually, not many people realize this, but Indonesia's education system is actually very progressive. At the core of it, Indonesia's education system is modular. So it means that you can stack your degree. You can actually enroll in the day Satu program. After the first year, you enroll in the day Dua, then st stack it to a day Tiga, and then take on something that's called an extension program and then graduate with a full bachelor's degree. That doesn't exist in many countries around the world. And if you sort of think about it, that's actually probably what education systems around the world might evolve towards, where people that go into the workforce earlier and earlier and then stack their degrees and programs across different years and might not have to focus on getting your degree within the three to four year period, as is the case today in the US or UK. Understood. Basic question for you, Naga. How exactly do we make our money at Arutafai? We typically make it through our interest income and servicing fees. In the Philippines, we actually run a multi-finance company. And then in Indonesia, we operate a PDP platform. So we basically take origination and servicing fees there. Yeah. Understood. So if that's the case, and if we were to build a hypothetical P&L, I guess our revenues would basically be our interest yields on loans outstanding minus our quote-unquote cost of funding, which is maybe what interest rate we pay those institutions who lend to us, minus bad loan write-offs, et cetera. And I assume there's also a cost of acquiring and underwriting. Below that, we, I guess, would get to a notional net profit line. Is the industry profitable at this point? And what profit margin do you think we can get to as an industry longer term? Obviously, the industry is still very nascent and small, but I think all indications show that when you run a disciplined approach to customer acquisition and proper sort of disciplined approach to underwriting, you can achieve very healthy margins on your loan book. I think actually just for a bit of color and context, we were originally a BDC business when we first launched out of White Combinator back in 2018. And actually, we allow anybody from anywhere to apply for a loan on our platform. We actually experienced pretty high NPLs then, and our customer acquisition costs was not in line with what we were generating in terms of revenue. So in late 2019, we actually pivoted to what became our current model, which is B2B2C, where we work through our university partners that act as distribution channels for us. And that has made a world of a difference in terms of the unit economics. Today, I would say we experience very healthy margins that are predicated on, again, disciplined approach of selecting the right university and school partners and also a disciplined approach to customer acquisition and underwriting that allow us to achieve healthy margins and then very strongly positive contribution margins. Another question I assume that you field somewhat often 
is do we carry any quote unquote balance sheet risks? Do we have loans on our balance sheet? In the Philippines, we do. So in the Philippines, we operate a multi-finance company. So the loans sit on our balance sheet. In Indonesia, we hold a P2P license from OJK. So we actually don't take balance sheet risk there. So we work with lenders that then take on the risk and we act as a facilitator for that. Understood. Now, Naga, what exactly did COVID do to our underlying market in terms of enrollment, dropout rates, or just any metrics that impacted our business? What were the most dramatic changes? Yeah, it's a bit of positive and minuses. You have dip in participation during COVID where people decided to forgo education. And we had some schools that reported 20 to 30% drop in enrollment when COVID was the most severe. At the same time, of the remaining 70%, a much higher percentage of students required financing. So actually net-net, we actually saw a much stronger demand for our product and service. We've grown maybe more than 5x over the last 18 months and continue to grow very strongly on positive contribution margins and even economics. I think COVID was a plus in that regard. The other good thing, or I wouldn't say good thing, but the other inadvertent thing that happened during COVID was that a lot of universities actually realized they were vulnerable. So schools that we maybe approached before prior to COVID that didn't feel like they needed our service actually realized during COVID that our service and product was something that their student base really needed to enroll and remain at school. And that the school also at the same time benefits tremendously from being able to outsource debt financing risk to a third party. So we had a much, much easier time convincing schools to work with us and they were much more receptive towards integrating with our systems. Today, we actually integrate by API with a number of our university partners and are working on rolling that out across our entire partnership base. And so I think on, on that regard, COVID accelerated the adoption of our product and services over the last 18 months. Gotcha. So Naga, how exactly do we use data and is that evolving or expanding at all right now? I think, as most fintech lenders would say, they take into account some non-traditional data. We also, to a certain extent, take into account student-specific information that typical consumer lender would not. And we've seen differences in repayment rates across schools, programs, majors, years of graduation that are somewhat predictive. Collectively, very predictive, but individually, somewhat predictive. So we continually refine our models on an ongoing basis to reflect what the data is telling us in terms of creditworthiness of our students. And I think for me, ultimately... Going back to first principles, you essentially have, obviously, both Indonesia and Philippines are very large unbanked populations. And actually, the simple act of extending credit to these students allows us to help them build up credit history as they move through school. So by the time any given student graduates from university, we would have developed at least three to four or even five to six semesters worth of repayment data on these students. So we know who is credit worthy, who is not what their repayment behaviors are like and what their consumer inclinations are like. And I think that's very powerful data that can allow us to extend our relationship with these students to a lifetime relationship through other financial products and services in the future, either through our own banking license or in partnership with an established bank or digital bank. Really, the goal is to expand financial inclusion to a segment of the population that is completely neglected today. Very interesting element around helping your first-time student borrowers build their own credit score. Now, Naga, what other content and services do we envision growing around this core student lending product? Yeah, Fanisha, there are two approaches or angles that we're doing this today. The first one is obviously through the school. Our schools are critical partners for us, acting not just as distribution channels, but really sort of channel partners for us. 
And over time, as we work more and more closely with these schools, we in some ways become an extension of these schools. So actually, we work not just with their finance or operations team, but also with their marketing team, enrollment teams, and so on and so forth. Right? We have, for example, a school in the Philippines that ran their enrollment on Google Sheets. That is not efficient and very subject to data loss or data integrity issues. So that's something that we plan to solve over time. In the earlier days, we actually reconciled our disbursement to the schools through a CSV file. We manually recorded each payment and we sent it to the school and they reconciled it with their system. So we actually, over time, built a partner dashboard. So it's essentially a simple SaaS product that our school partners use to track and monitor disbursements that we make to them. They can log in at any time, view in real time the number of students that are applying from any given faculty program for financing, who is getting approved and how many track trends across months. And also for their finance teams, automatically download disbursements reports that they can then reconcile with their own internal systems. So over time, I do see ourselves expanding our products and services to better service our school partners that might or might not include enrollment and financial management for schools. So that's on the part of the schools. And on the part of the students, it's the same way as the fact that I still have the same bank account that I did when I was a kid. I think the statistic that somebody quoted to me before was that you're actually more likely to get a divorce than change bank accounts. Even in this crowded digital banking space, I think that is still largely true. By the simple act of us being the first financial institution that developed a relationship with these students, I do believe that we can use that to build a long-term relationship with them and offer digital banking products and services to these students and retain them as lifetime customers. There's a lot of gratitude being built up, like we're essentially taking a bet on these students before they enter the workforce. And today we fund 25,000 students. Fast forward 2025, maybe we're funding half a million students a year. And I do think that working across half a million students a year and rolled across 100 to 200 or 250 to 300 universities. And I think for me, that is sort of a very, very good position to be in. In the same way that you can't really imagine a world without Gojek or Grab today, right? Whether it's go food or getting from point A to point B in Jakarta. I think my aspiration or hope is that in the future, if you are a student enrolling in college in the Philippines or Indonesia, you cannot imagine a world where Danachita or Bukas, which is what we were known as in the Philippines, doesn't exist. And so that's really my one simple hope. Naga, a really fascinating discussion about Indonesia's student financing environment. It was definitely exciting to learn more about Arutify's growing mission around student financing. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much, Alan. Stay safe. Likewise. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indo Techno podcast with us. Terima kasih. Sampai jumpa lagi.